Welcome to Defenders, the teaching class of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, excursus on creation of life and biological diversity, part two. For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org. Last time we began our excursus on the doctrine of creation and the origin of life and biological diversity. And we are looking at Genesis chapter 1 with a view toward understanding the various interpretations of Genesis 1 that have been offered. The first interpretation that we want to consider is the most straightforward interpretation of Genesis 1, what we could call the literal interpretation, sometimes called the 24-hour day interpretation. For example, my doctoral mentor, the great systematic theologian Wolfhard Pannenberg, cites the eminent German Old Testament scholar Gerhard von Rath in support of the scientific character of Genesis chapter 1. Pannenberg argues that, primitive as it might be, nevertheless the intention of Genesis 1 is to give a scientific account of the origins of the world and of life. And this is what von Rath has to say in his Old Testament theology. And I, oh, before I read the quotation from von Rath, a word of background will be helpful in understanding what he has to say. Old Testament scholars have identified a number of hypothetical sources behind the Pentateuch. And one of these is the so-called P document, a hypothetical written source that is supposed to have been written from a priestly perspective. That is to say, the perspective of someone involved in the Levitical sacrifices that are described in the book of Leviticus. And Genesis 1, 1 to chapter 2, verse 3, is usually identified as based upon this hypothetical P source. Now, uh, von Rott will refer to this priestly document, and so that's what he's talking about when he says the following. The account of creation is, of course, completely bound to the cosmological knowledge of its time. But it is a bad thing for the Christian expositor completely to disregard this latter as obsolete, as if the theologian has only to deal with the faith expressed in Genesis 1 and not with its view of nature. For there can be no doubt that the creation story in the priestly document seeks to convey not merely theological, but also scientific knowledge. It is characterized by the fact, which is difficult for us to understand, that here theological and scientific knowledge are in accord with no tension between them. The two sets of statements are not only parallel, but are interwoven in such a way that one cannot really say of any part of Genesis 1 that this particular statement is 
uh, purely scientific and therefore without importance for us, and this particular statement is purely theological. In the scientific ideas of the time, theology had found an instrument which suited it perfectly, and it could make use of the appropriate unfolding of certain subjects, in this case, the doctrine of creation. Now, Pollenbach thinks that such primitive science has now been overtaken by modern science, and therefore it needs to be corrected. But Pollenbach finds motivation in the biblical author's approach to trying to integrate theology with a scientific view of the world. The science of the P author is now obsolete and no longer valid, but nevertheless his project of trying to integrate theology with science is a worthy one, and we should follow his example in trying to integrate theology with the science of our day. Similarly, young earth creationists take the aim of Genesis chapter 1 to be to communicate scientific information about the origin of the world and humanity. The difference between young earth creationists and theologians like von Rath and Pallenberg is that young earth creationists take the account to be accurate. God created the world in six consecutive 24-hour days about 10 to 20,000 years ago. So this interpretation reads the text in a prima facie way. That is to say, it takes the text at face value. It takes the text literally to say what it says. Now, this raises the question as to what do we mean by literal? By literal, I mean that it's not to be taken figuratively. Now, the young earth creationist Jonathan um, Sarfati, in his commentary on Genesis 1-11, says that young earth creationists are perfectly prepared to recognize metaphors and other figures of speech in Genesis 1-11. For example, when the flood narrative says that the windows of heaven were opened, um, they don't imagine this to mean that there are literal windows in the firmament. Rather, they recognize that this is a metaphor for rain. So by literal, Sarfati means merely the grammatical historical meaning of the text, uh, which doesn't exclude figurative language. The problem with Sarfati's characterization is that it ignores genre and is so general as to be almost useless. Even poetry should be interpreted literally in that sense, namely the grammatico-historical sense. What we want to know is whether Genesis 1-11 is to be read as a literal account of what actually happened. Sarfati does defend a non-figurative interpretation of Genesis 1-11 on the grounds that it is of the genre of history. He identifies the genre of Genesis 1-11 as history. 
Now we're getting somewhere. The key chapter in Sarklati's commentary justifying his view that Genesis 1 to 11 belonged to the genre of history is chapter 2 entitled, Genesis is History, Not Poetry or Allegory. Genesis is History, Not Poetry or Allegory. Now, immediately one notes an insufficient range of alternatives. We may all agree that Genesis 1 to 11 is neither poetry nor allegory. These chapters are prose narrative, but that doesn't imply that they belong to the genre of history. Sarfati tends to conflate narrative prose with history. For example, he observes that the early chapters of Genesis frequently use a construction uh, in Hebrew called the Vav consecutive. Vav is the Hebrew word for and, and then in the Vav consecutive you have a verb in the imperfect tense. And this is a singular mark of a sequential narrative. A narrative typically begins with a perfect tense verb and then it continues with imperfect tense verbs. Applying this to Genesis 1, the first verb in Genesis 1 is bara, create. In the beginning God created. That's in the perfect. And then the subsequent verbs are in the imperfect. And this is exactly what one would expect, Sarfati says, from a historical narrative. But it's also what one would expect from a non-historical narrative. Myths are narratives, as are folk tales and legends. They relate a story involving a sequence of events, but they're not historical narratives. Sarfati conflates narrative style with historical narrative. In the section of his chapter entitled Numerical Analysis of the Literary Genre of Genesis, he cites a statistical study of the verb forms in narrative and poetic texts. And the study shows that Genesis 1-1 to 2-3 is statistically classified as narrative with a probability of 0.9999%. From this he concludes, quote, this analysis shows that Genesis is almost certainly historical narrative and not poetry. This is a non sequitur. From its being uh, narrative, it doesn't follow that it is history, only that it's uh, not a poem. It is narrative prose, but it doesn't follow that it's history. Sarfati goes on to ask, well, if Genesis were history, how would you expect it to look? He says we can answer that from the style of the undisputed historical books in the Old Testament like Exodus, Joshua, Judges, and Genesis chapter 12 to 50. This argument, however, backfires, for such a comparison is precisely what leads scholars to differentiate Genesis 1 to 11 from such historical narratives. For example, the prominent evangelical 
Old Testament commentator Gordon Wenham observes that when Genesis 1 to 11 is compared with Genesis chapters 12 to 50, a striking difference emerges. Chapters 1 to 11 are full of parallels with ancient Near Eastern traditions, so that it looks as though Genesis is reflecting these Oriental sagas both positively and negatively. Genesis 12 to 50, by contrast, are quite different, says Wenham. Abraham and his descendants are the exclusive concern of these chapters, and there is no suggestion that the patriarchal stories are adaptations of Oriental sagas. Hermann Gunkel, who was one of the earliest proponents of the view that Genesis 1 to 11 has a background in ancient Near Eastern myths, um, in his book, The Legends of Genesis, 1901, contrasted the early chapters of Genesis uh, precisely with the Old Testament historical books. And he remarks, and I quote, contrast these narratives with Israelitish historical writing, such as the central portion of the second book of Samuel, the most exquisite piece of early historical writing in Israel. Sarfati's mistake may be that he restricts his analysis of literary genre to grammar and style. Those are the two elements that he considers in determining genre, grammar and style. But we must also reckon with the function of a literary text in the culture in which it was related. This is precisely the burden of um, Old Testament scholar John Collins' new book, Reading Genesis Well, which I highly recommend to anyone interested in this subject. Um, Collins' criticism of those who insist on what is called the plain meaning of the text, uh, which ignores function, applied directly to uh, Sarfati's analysis. So the question is whether the text is of the type that intends the reader to take it literally. Now, von Rath gives no evidence at all for his view that Genesis 1 is primitive science. He simply asserts it. Now, clearly, Genesis chapters 1 to 3 are intended to be historical on some level, at least. Um, Adam and Eve, for example, are presented in chapters 2 and 3 as the first couple of the human race, the progenitors of the entire human race. Adam and Eve are treated as historical individuals, not just symbols of mankind, but as actual people who are connected to descendants by the genealogies in Genesis 1 to 11, uh, and finally to indisputable historical figures like Abraham. And we mustn't overlook, after all, the central figure of Genesis 1 to 11, namely God himself. God is clearly not meant to be just a symbol 
or a mythological figure, but a real personal agent who created the world and humanity and then goes on to call the nation of Israel to, his, to be his special people. So the central figure of the Genesis narrative is a literal, personal individual who is the creator of the world and um, the God of Israel. On the other hand, the Genesis narrative is undoubtedly also meant to be symbolic uh, or metaphorical in certain respects. For example, the name Adam, the name of the first man, just is the Hebrew word for man. And Eve is interpreted by the author to mean the mother of all living. So Adam and Eve are not just historical individuals, but they also represent humanity. Adam is, in a sense, every man um, created by God. And in the creation story that we have in Genesis 2, we clearly have metaphorical or anthropomorphic descriptions of God. God is described as walking in the garden and looking for Adam and Eve and saying, where are you? And they're hiding from God and God must find them. Or again, when God creates man, it says that he fashions him out of the dust of the earth and then breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. Now clearly this is not intended to be a kind of literal CPR that God performs on Adam by blowing into his nose. So there are also literary and metaphorical devices that are plausibly being used in these chapters as well. In fact, the whole narrative in Genesis chapter 1 is an incredibly crafted piece of Hebrew literature. It is really unique. As already said, it is not poetry. It is not a hymn. But it's not just straightforward prose either. Uh, Collins calls it exalted prose. It is a highly stylized piece of writing with a certain parallelism that is characteristic of poetry. For example, you have repeated again and again, and God said, and God made, and it was so on the various creative days. It's a carefully uh, stylistically structured chapter that exhibits a great deal of literary polish. Even the number of the Hebrew letters in Genesis 1 is carefully chosen. So it's not just a simple police report or a scientific report of what happened. And therefore most evangelical exegetes um, will say that these narratives are meant to be taken in a sense that is both historical and figurative. The underlying historical events actually happened, but nevertheless the narrative is told in poetic imagery or figurative speech that shouldn't be pressed for literal precision. So Genesis um, 1 seems to be a kind of historical but figurative genre of writing. That is to say, it covers historical events, but using poetic or figurative language to describe them. 
And if that's correct, then it would be making unwarranted demands on the text to interpret it literally. In particular, it would be unwarranted to press the Hebrew word yom for day to mean that the world was created in six consecutive 24-hour days. Let me pause there and ask if there is any comment or question so far before we continue. <laughs> yes. Just for context reasons, when you say Genesis is not like a straightforward pro, what does that mean? When you Well, in this case, what I mean is that it's highly polished. It exhibits, for example, this parallelism and other artistic qualities. It's not a poem. It's not Hebrew poetry, but it exhibits some of that um, style uh, of poetry, like the, the parallel lines, the, the repetition, the structure, the numbering of the letters. Many scholars have pointed out the recurrence of the number seven in the, in the narrative, for example, as being perhaps theologically significant, or multiples of seven. So it's a, it's a highly stylized piece of writing. It's not like a police report, so to speak. Yes, Jonathan. Ordinarily, when we think of something being metaphorical or analogous to something, there's something literal that's being compared, that it's being compared to. Yes. But I'm not sure if that, could you comment on that not really being the case with Genesis? So for example, when God calls the sea, the sea, and calls the earth a name, I, I don't imagine that there's some literal event where God is giving a proper name to something or something that's analogous to that. I think that that would be a good example of figurative language. Um, God, in the beginning of the chapter, is a transcendent being beyond the universe who is not like the anthropomorphic deities of Israel's pagan neighbors, these humanoid um, deities cavorting with each other and, and doing physical things. God transcends the, the entire material universe and brings it into being by his word. So in that sense, God doesn't have vocal cords so as to speak and um, say that I'm going to call this earth, I'm going to call this day. This is clearly, I think, as you say, a figurative language applied to God. Moreover, there's no reason to think that God would speak Hebrew. Um, the narrative is told in the language of the author who's writing it. We read it in the language of our English Bibles, but God himself doesn't speak Hebrew, I think we can presume. In fact, Collins pointed out to me at a recent conference that there are certain kinds of anachronisms in Genesis 1 to 11 that also show its non-literal character. And one example of this would be when Adam is presented with Eve as the helper that is suitable for him, um, he cries out, this is now uh, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And the Hebrew words there for man and woman, ish and isha, in fact, didn't exist prior to the time of the monarchy. The, this is a development linguistically in Hebrew around 1000 BC or so. And so Adam, in the primeval history, couldn't have made this pun because 
that didn't exist. It, it's an anachronism in the language of the author. So um, I think that these narratives are making deep theological points for us to understand, like, for example, the equal value of man and woman before God, the fact that the stars and the sun and the moon are not astral deities to be worshipped, they're mere creatures um, made by God. Um, human beings are made to know God and to fellowship with him. They're not created, as in Babylonian myths, as slaves to do the grunt work of the gods and to feed the gods. The, these Hebrew stories, even taken figuratively, are so different from these gross and often vile polytheistic myths of ancient Mesopotamian and Egypt. They, and so they can make these theological points, I think, independently of interpreting a lot of the narrative literally. Just a, a fun nugget in the Hebrew language. I remember um, how Adam, Adam, is, you know, he's made from the dirt, from the earth. Yes. And uh, the Hebrew word, one of them for earth and dirt land is Adamah. So Adam from Adamah. Yes, very from. good. Uh, what Bobby points out is that the very name, Adam, um, resembles the Hebrew word for earth, Adamah. So Adam is created out of the dust of the earth, and there is a kind of pun there as well on the, on the name of Adam. So there's, a, again, a kind of symbolic significance there. Uh, it's not just a straightforward narrative that Adam was made out of dirt. Ah, Taiwan, yes. Yes, Dr. Craig, last week we were talking about the uh, author of Genesis. Yes. And I think this is uh, a, a relevant continuation uh, from my understanding of the Chinese history, which is long. Um, the way history is captured is a, uh, many, many revisions. And in the beginning, maybe people communicate by tying knots on the rope, and then they start drawing pictures. And but the idea is preserved, and those and and God is able to move people to care about certain things they want to preserve. So there are, you know, some the the ancient book of the change Ijin yes. was re, uh, revived. Uh, revised many, many times, and Confucius did uh, the last revision, and, and it's so I figure um, maybe Genesis is also how things are important that people find a way to preserve, and then uh, the God can move people to to kind of get a little more revision with more uh, understanding as he revealed more to them. Sure. And I wanted to hear your opinion yes. about this. I, I think that what you're saying, Taiwan, is certainly plausible. And I'm not yet offering a critique of the literalist interpretation or endorsing a different interpretation, but just trying to say there's a range of alternatives here. And I think what you've said is very plausible, um, and we'll talk more about that when we get to other non-literal interpretations. Just this week, Taiwan, I was reading um, about Chinese mythology, 
And uh, this is an area that for Westerners is as yet very underexplored and uh, more work needs to be done on the kind of comparative stories that you have in the ancient Near East and those that are existing in China. Okay, one more question and then we'll uh, have our brunch. Okay. Um, maybe this is something you want to cover later. I just heard you say um, that we'll cover more non-literal things later. Yes. But I'm sure you're familiar with the work of John Walton at Wheaton. Yes. Um, I've been reading a lot of his work lately, and it's interesting. One of his theories is that the uh, Genesis is, of course, history, but that it's also an allegory of God setting up the earth as a temple, that he sets it up as uh, the Garden of Eden, as his dwelling place, that there's the seven wor- six days of work and one day of rest, and that the, the earth and the universe are his temple. Um, he also talks about that verb uh, bara. Of course, in Hebrew, each word yes. has a lot more work than English verbs do, but he, he talks about that as being something where God is more ordering and defining and naming and putting things into their roles. And so then when he rests on the seventh day, the rest is not really him kicking back in a hammock and resting at the beach. It's more like um, his rest is that, that peace that we get when everything is as it should be. Yes. And so I wondered what your opinion of Walton and his We'll be his talking about Walton's so-called functional interpretation of Genesis chapter 1. So hang on to that until later. Uh, as for the temple motif, uh, although I tend to be rather skeptical of this, there are a good number of scholars, including Wenham, who do think that the Garden of Eden is meant to be a sort of symbol of a, a sanctuary um, in which God would fellowship with man and woman in this pristine state, and they had to be, of course, driven out of it after their fall. So that would be an additional non-literal element in the narrative if you did accept that. All right. Well, with that, we will uh, close today. Uh, We'll resume this discussion when we come back in January. But for those who are staying for the brunch, let's have a word of thanks. Father, we are so thankful that we have the chance to meet together as a class and explore these important and profound questions. And we Bless your name now for this good food that you provided. We have so much, so much abundance, and we do not take it for granted, Lord, but thank you profoundly for all that we enjoy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The copyright for the preceding material is held by Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.